Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Professor, if the Bill of Rights is not the right solution because that that really is a restraint on the government, how do we start to create this protection? Is it through regulating unfair trade practice? Is, is that the solution? Well, that's one of the ways to deal with it. So what I want to say is that the process of taking advantage of the great things that digital technologies provide for us is not going to be fixed by one law, like a US GDPR. It's going to be a continual process over years, over decades, and possibly over generations as technology marches forwards and we deal with problems like discriminatory artificial intelligences and robotic police officers or whatever comes next. What we need to do to get directly to your question for consumer protection issues in a digital economy is to have additional resources for the existing entities that are. So, so one of the, the prongs in the Build Back Better bill actually provided you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of additional resources for the Federal Trade Commission to deal with these problems. But it's worth noting that the FTC is using its unfair and deceptive trade practice jurisdiction in the U.S., as the primary lever of US information policy, human information policy. Those protections date back to 1914. So they're pretty useless when it comes to mobile apps, or at least need a significant update. They need an update. I don't want to criticize the FTC here. The FTC has done a masterful and noble job trying to protect American consumers from privacy violations and from the manipulation of their data by companies over the last 25 years. But they need more resources, they need updated tools, and they need new tools, just for the same reasons that the FTC needed to be created in 1914 to deal with problems of competition and consumer manipulation and exploitation in the industrial economy. We need a new generation of updated and improved rules Some of them could be provided by additional resources, but others of them, I think, require some more imagination. You mentioned the GDPR. That's the General Data Protection Regulation. Is is that right in Europe? Yeah, Europe's comprehensive privacy law. And does that take care of some of what you'd like to see happening here in the United States, if it were here in the United States? It does. I, I think a very good first step that we could take would be to pass a baseline data protection regulation like Europe has, in fact, like every advanced economy in the world has, apart from the United States. Canada's had one for for 20 years. Europe's had one for 25. China just passed one. Uh, South Korea, uh, Argentina, all of these countries have comprehensive privacy laws, but the United States doesn't. And I think it's a tremendous failure of leadership on the part of Congress. Um, and it's been a tremendous uh, problem for American consumers not, not having something like the GDPR. But, but I'd like to go further, but a GDPR would be a good first step. What about what you've seen in some of the states? I know California's passed a couple of data privacy uh, laws or laws that add to data privacy. So California has passed a number of laws, starting with the, the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act. The CCPA is a well-meaning law, 
But the problem with the CCPA is, first of all, it only applies in California, not a national law. So not everybody can avail themselves of its protections. And second, the CCPA remains control-based. It remains rooted in consumer choice and consumer objections to objectionable data practices. It doesn't set basic rules for the road that apply to everybody that is processing data. It, it only has its strongest effect when consumers choose to exercise their rights. And as we just discussed, consumers are already overburdened. So what I think we should have are baseline rules that actually restrict certain kinds of problematic information practices. The GDPR has some of that, but I think we should go further. Basically, as harried, overburdened, not entirely rational consumers, we should be able to trust that there's a basic set of protections for us so we can live our lives, so we can connect on, on social media or, or send email or, or receive personalized product recommendations from services. But we also have the reassurance that we're not being manipulated, we're not being abused, and we're not being exploited. And can help in some ways provide some more balance to the, the tug of war between giant mega companies and uh, individual citizens. Absolutely. And remember what I said before, because we have no rules, basically, in this space, we have very, very limited rules. But because our law mandates publicly traded companies to, be, to maximize their profits, even if companies and their, their well-meaning uh, designers and lawyers and engineers, even if they want to do things that are more consumer protective, if the law allows exploitation, that puts them at a competitive disadvantage. And so what I'm calling for are rules that are reasonable, rules that aren't necessarily targeted at the well-meaning company because they already know that being good to and not exploiting your customers is, is a good way to do business. But to the companies that, that are willing or, or mandated by the law to cheat, to manipulate, to exploit. And our, our legal regime currently allows that and in many cases actually encourages it. Why don't we talk through with some detail the types of practices that you'd like to see regulated. In your book, you divide it into three categories. One is deception, another is abusiveness or abuse, and then you have some things to say about the free internet. Do you think we could go through in, in under that structure with those three and, and talk through you know, some of the issues and what should be regulated? Well, I think there are four areas in which our law could be significantly improved. And this is just, just four examples. There are many other areas. The first two are deception and unfairness. And, and these are the, the tools that the FTC has had to protect consumers since 1914. Let's take deception first. Deception is, is pretty good. The FTC could have more resources to deal with deception. I think also, though, the definition of deception hasn't allowed it to go after what I think is is the most deceptive practice on the modern internet, which is this idea that all of these products and services that are based on surveillance are somehow free. So I'm thinking here of Google Search and Google Documents and, and Facebook and Twitter. These products are, are, quote, free in that they don't charge us any cash money to use them. But they are not free in the sense that a value transaction is taking place. And so Calling these services free, actually, this is where behavioral economics comes in again, allows companies to have another magical effect on our brains. We tend to overstate the benefits 
of something labeled free, and we tend to understate its cost. There is no such thing as a free lunch, it turns out. Deception could be strengthened to prohibit companies from calling things free when they're not. And and yes, this is a point where companies sort of beat us around the head by saying, but Facebook is free. How can you complain about it? But there is a value transaction because looking at it from Facebook's side, maybe the value of our data to them is only a small amount in any individual transaction, but added up billions and trillions of times for Facebook, for Google, for other companies, it's created in the aggregate the greatest fortunes known to humankind. And to my mind, that's not a free transaction and calling it such is deceptive. We can also strengthen unfairness authority. Right now, the FTC has to go through a torturous balancing test in subsection N of section five, requiring to show not just substantial harm to consumers before something is unfair, but to make sure that the the harm is not outweighed by the benefit to consumers or to commerce. In other words, current law allows substantial harm to individual consumers if it helps consumers in the aggregate, and it allows substantial harm to all consumers if it enhances competition. And I think that has the calculus entirely the wrong way around. I think unfairness should be expanded to include significant injuries that that don't meet the very high statutory threshold right now. What do you mean by uh, valuing the group of individuals over a a subgroup? So the the FTC Act was amended in order to to, to bring this balancing test in. So the, the text of subsection N basically creates this balancing test that in order for something to be an unfair trade practice, the substantial injury cannot be outweighed by a benefit to consumers or to commerce. So what's an example? So you could imagine the Facebook mental health allegation. And I'm deliberately making up the numbers here as an example here, rather than accusing Facebook of this. So let's say you have, a, you have Instagram. And Instagram, the company knows that one third of its users are going to be made sad uh, and suffer mental health problems as a result of the service but it learns that two-thirds of its consumers are going to really, really enjoy it. That would, under the text of subsection N, that would not constitute an unfair trade practice because of the balancing test. So I would call for scrapping the balancing test. An unfair trade practice is one that is unfair, is one that causes significant or substantial injury to consumers um, with no corresponding benefit to them. What if, you know, let's take a, a real-life example. Let's say that... 10% of ten tennis players found the sport made them very sad and 90% enjoyed it, would you ask the state to close the public courts? Of course not. But I think if tennis were a monopoly, the way a lot of these platforms are, and the and the comp the t- tennis inc knew that there was a, there was a way that the service was being built that was injuring or harming 10% of their customers. So so maybe if you have not government control of tennis, but if you have a health club and the health club is using a surface on its indoor tennis courts that cause 10% of people to slip and sprain their ankles needlessly, I think it's perfectly reasonable to to require them to use a different paint on the surface. So it's a safe environment for all of the customers, all of the customers who are paying them to provide these 
tennis or, or, or search or social networking services. That's all I'm saying. So you're saying, you know, it's more akin to the, the wet aisle in a grocery store where someone might slip and, and seriously injure themselves while others may maintain balance. You know, that person who fell has a, a cause of action against the grocery store. Yes. And I would say on the social media example, if it is true that a company's business model that promotes engagement, right, total time spent on the service, more eyeballs equals more ad seed equals more revenue. If the engagement model causes a significant mental health problem in a significant fraction of their customers, then maybe the model should be regulated. That maybe allowing companies to take engagement as the only metric by which they build their services uh, should be inappropriate. This sounds like it could actually be interpreted radically. I'm thinking of you know, China's recent decisions to limit video game play because uh, they've determined that extended play of video games is unhealthy for the society. Could you imagine a structure under which you know, a U.S. law could do something similar? I could. I, I think American politics would be resistant to anything that was A, imposed by the Chinese government, and B, a result of top-down government command and control of how people choose to use their computers, right? I, I think politically that would be infeasible. But I think it's certainly okay to build in safeguards, so limits on notification practices. So maybe you can play the game as long as you want, but the, the company is prohibited from reminding you, hey, you haven't played Clash of Clans or, or, or Tetris or, or Halo in the last six hours. Your friends are waiting for you. Check back in. Your dragon is about to hatch. Well, so that was the next thing is I would love the FTC to seriously look in the context of games at real-time timers. I think those are deeply problematic because they're purely designed to make the technology more addictive, not through better gameplay, but through manipulation and design. And so if you take those off the table, then game designers don't get to compete on how can we better manipulate people to coming back to our service? How can we structure ads uh, and making them watch ads to enable them to progress in our addictive game? They have to compete on gameplay and game design, and graphics, and character, and story. And that's really cool. This is slightly far afield, but I think it's no coincidence that the fact that we're living in the so-called, quote, golden age of television is because the platforms that have produced this great TV, the BBC, HBO, Netflix, are not ad-supported services. They're services that have competed with government support in the case of the BBC, of course, but their services have competed on the quality of the product, not the addictiveness of the product for all we binge on Netflix. Well, how about abusiveness? This is another area that you'd like to see regulated. Maybe you could start with an example and perhaps, you know, a way of addressing it. Sure. So abusiveness is something I'd like to see as the third prong of FTC authority in addition to deception and unfairness. Abusiveness is basically don't use human biases to exploit them. Don't weaponize behavioral economics in the design of your products to manipulate consumers. Now, you could read 
abusiveness as an offshoot of unfairness. And I would be fine with that too. But it's worth talking about, at least for our purposes, as something that is separate. So an example of abusiveness would be those reminders, the use of design choices to get people to do what you want. So if you have a a delete option, it has to be neutral. You can't have the the remain option be bigger than the delete option. Uh, we, we see this in the non-digital environment. I, I tried to, when I, when I bought a car about five years ago, I asked them for, for leasing terms and they gave me a structured standard form flyer where the things they wanted me to choose, the certain financing terms or certain amounts of money down that were better for them were in big font, were colorful, and the options that I had, I had a right to, to use, but were probably better for me, were in tiny, tiny font at the bottom of the page. That would be an example of abusiveness. I think that this might be controversial, but the 99 cent pricing is abusiveness. If it's abusive online, why is it not abusive at the, at the local convenience store? But it should be. Oh, in other words, you think prices should all be rounded up? The line between things being online and things being offline are blurring anyway. And and I think talking about cyberspace, it's a dated term, but talking about the digital environment as if it is somehow separate from our daily lives, particularly now that we carry computers with us everywhere, particularly when location-based advertising is something that that is used. And when, you know, bricks and mortar businesses are using personal data to better market and segment it sometimes to manipulate us. We need to have a consumer protection law that works for consumers all the time, rather than one separate set for online and one separate set for offline. I'll push back just a little to see how, it, how the conversation goes, but it seems incredibly unrealistic to me that you'd take away the ability for companies to design for their targeted outcome. I'm thinking, you know, if a green purchase button performs better than a blue one, why why wouldn't you use the green and and if you were to take away color as a choice there's a variety of things that impact consumer choice you know one landing page outperforms another are we going to be stuck with only neutral landing pages are companies going to have to take away creative design only a gray pale stalinist internet no that that's not what i'm suggesting what i am suggesting though is behavioral economics enables manipulation. And companies know this. And companies are leveraging the insights of behavioral economics. They're leveraging the ways they know that we are predictably irrational in order to manipulate us. And so I think there should be abusiveness jurisdiction given to the FTC, maybe only to deal with the most egregious examples of of, of cognitive manipulation. But it is going on. And I think that's an area where we could see legal reform. And I've seen uh, websites that'll have a series of pop-ups where you click yes because you genuinely wanted to click yes, and then they'll send one where you actually might've wanted to click no, but you're so used to clicking yes that you've, you're stuck in the pattern and you've given them the ability to track your data or turn on exactly. notifications. Exactly, or, or the timing of those notifications when they know you're most likely to be, I just wanna get through uh, I was trying to buy bagels once, and, and they, they made me install the bagel company app in order to get a discount. They actually literally would not let me purchase the bagels. And there are all these privacy terms, and there's people behind me in line at the bagel store saying, come on, just, just buy your bagels already. 
Um, and so I, you know, I, I clicked through everything because, because I was in this engineered environment, both the physical space of the store and the digital space of the app interface where there was no capacity for choice, much less for rational choice. That would be an example too. And of course, there's a lot of overlap between things that are deceptive and things that are unfair and things that are abusive. But I think we need to look at that field a little more broadly in terms of what's problematic than the very narrow industrial age model that we have under current FTC Section 5 unfairness hobbled by subsection N and deception jurisprudence. And if we're arguing about how far is enough, then then I will be I'll be delighted to have that conversation. I'll be delighted to lose. Uh, but we I think we need to have this conversation about a broader understanding of deception, a broader understanding of unfairness, and taking abusiveness seriously as a potential legal wrong we might want to have remedied. For those who are listening for MCLE credit, the code for this interview is 153105. That's 153105. Now back to the interview. So before we move on to the free internet, and actually this is quite a bit related, I'd like to talk to you about targeted ads. This is an area that you, you've written about. This is an issue that privacy scholars talk about. What's the problem with targeted ads? Uh, I guess, first off, they're, more, they're perhaps more useful to the, to the users. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just trying to provoke me, Joel. No, I, I think, in, in all seriousness, there was an old New Yorker cartoon in the 90s, you may remember. On the internet, nobody knows you were a dog. Um, and it's back in the old days of the internet when when it was a realm of radical privacy. And now we've moved from an internet where nobody knows that you're a dog to one where they know what breed of dog you are and they know your preferences with respect to you know, different kinds of canned dog food. We have built, under the auspices of human empowerment, the greatest surveillance network in the history of humanity. And we, we talked in the first conversation about how the data that, that can be created through surveillance-based advertising can be used for political manipulation, but it can also be used for consumer manipulation as well. Obviously, the more advertisers know about consumers, the, the more they'll be able to more successfully market to them, even if it's to get them to buy stuff they don't really or necessarily rationally want. But isn't that the task of advertisers everywhere to, to convince people to buy things they don't want? Oh, it is. But the point is here, the goal of the internet, the goal of the modern economy, the goal of these technologies should not be perfect advertising, right? The goal is the things we're reading about, we're connecting, we're using to live our lives. Advertising is a way of paying for some of these services. And I'm not saying we should outlaw advertising, but I think we should recognize advertising for what it is, a necessary evil a tax upon our cognitive bandwidth, something that gets in the way of why we're really there. And so all we need is not perfect advertising, but enough advertising to enable these services to happen. And my argument is we don't need surveillance-based advertising for that to happen. We can have 
what newspapers and TV stations and internet sites used for generations, which is contextual advertising, which is advertising that is related to the subject you're engaging with. So if you're reading articles about sports, they can send you ads for baseball caps with various sports teams. But they don't need to read your email. They don't need to follow you everywhere you go in the, the physical world and in the digital world in order to, to get better ads. Now, they do if we allow surveillance-based advertising. Because if, if I'm an ad company trying to offer privacy-protective contextual ads, and you're an ad company offering finely-grained surveillance-based ads, your ads might be more effective. And so if we take your advertising model off the table as unreasonably dangerous, and, and given the Cambridge Analytica revelations potentially deeply threatening to our democratic integrity, then we companies can compete on contextual ads. I have no problem with that whatsoever. What I do have is the surveillance capitalism model of advertising, which collects far more data than is necessary, subjects people to the risk of data breach, manipulation, and a whole host of avoidable information age harms. I think this ties into your last criticism or your last area where protection is needed, which is your general critique of the free internet with quotations. Maybe you can do a, a teardown or the case against Right. So we hear a lot about the free internet. And anytime there's a regulatory proposal, companies will say, well, well, hang on, we're giving this to you for free. And free is great. Now, we've already discussed why free is cognitively problematic, right? That we tend to overstate the benefits and understate the costs. But more fundamentally, an internet or, or a digital business model that is based upon free is based upon advertising. The model is based upon what advertising will bear. And some things are fine with advertising, right? That I'm actually okay with internet search where there is advertising, as long as it, it doesn't require deep grain surveillance of the, of the individual. But I think more fundamentally, we should reevaluate the role that advertising plays in our society. I think there is a place for advertising, but I think it has crept in too much. And I mentioned before about the problem of culture. You know, if you think about network TV as opposed to TV that is on Netflix or, or HBO, the network TV is worse because they're building 26 episode programs of television, primarily for whatever will continue to let them sell advertising rather from culture on its, on its own terms. Whereas a subscription model, whether it's a book or, or, or whether it's, it's something like Netflix, you're paying, you're not seeing ads. They have to compete on the quality of the content that they're providing. And so advertising is, is not this, this magic panacea. It rests upon surveillance. It can produce worse cultural outputs. And I think we should just have a conversation about what the appropriate role for advertising is. I would suspect that, that all of us have a limit to where we think advertising should penetrate. Would we be fine with ads before we sit down for Thanksgiving dinner if we get a 10% discount on the price of the turkey? Maybe not, right? Maybe there are places where commerce should not belong. But I worry if we don't have that conversation, uh, we might wake up and find, as we have with the internet to date, that commerce and the surveillance that comes 
with the business model of surveillance-based advertising has penetrated much further than it would have if we'd had the conversation and made a, a choice as users of the innovative internet about where to draw that line in the first place. What would you say to individuals who would say, look, I, I prefer my advertising to track me across platforms. Should that be a choice that they could opt into? I think the important thing when we talk about personalization is who is being served. So if a person is saying that they, they want to be able to track across platforms, I don't think they're saying they want to be manipulated across platforms. They just have this idea that they want the, the ads they receive to be more relevant to them. And there's a way to do that, even with personalization, but it requires an additional legal step. So a number of scholars, myself included, have, have envisioned this idea of a duty of loyalty. And so I would say you can have personalization, but when you have personalization, particularly where there's no money transaction taking place, when it's a, a quote, free service, you should have a duty of loyalty. And all that requires is that the company has to act in the best interests of the, the human customer with respect to their data. So if the company is really recommending to you the, the shoes that they think you would most want to have that would make you happiest, that's being loyal. And I have no problem with that. If the company is marketing to you the shoes that they can get the most money from advertisers to get you to buy, if they're using your data in particular to make that sale easier for their real clients in this case, that's disloyal. And I think that's problematic. Ultimately, I think where we should try and, and get human information and the problems of human information are not going away. But we should strive to craft our human information policy with legal rules that promote human flourishing, that promote human values, and more concretely, promote trust. Neil Richards is a leading privacy scholar and writes on information policy. He's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Neil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joel. It's been a delight. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.